0: You're listening to the New York Public Library Podcast. I'm Aiden Flax-Clark. Freshwater is the debut novel by Akwaiki and She was here at the library a couple weeks ago to talk about it with Glory Edom. Glory Edom is the founder of the very cool book club Well-Read Black Girl. The book kind of defies description. When I've been reading about it, the thing that I found really interesting about all the reviews is that when they try to encapsulate what the plot is, it always seems kind of wrong. Some people say it's about mental illness. Some people say it's about multiple personalities, about different cultures. And it's about all those things, I guess, and also not. But you don't really need me to talk about the book because Gloria and Akwaeke did when they were here. They also talked about a lot of really interesting reading, including an essay that Akwaeke and Meze wrote in January for The Cut that I really encourage you to read. So we'll put all that on the show page for any of you who want to follow up. Here's Akwaeke Amezi talking about her debut novel, Freshwater, with Glory Eden.
1: Thank you so much for coming out today. Thank you, Akwaeke, for being here, for writing this book. Thank you. Um, so before we even dive into
2: the conversation, you are going to read. I'm going to read. <laughs> um, so I'm reading from a section of the book that's narrated by one of the main character's selves called Asugara. I appreciated it, of course, Embodiment was luxurious, at least at first. I felt a new power, a flood of greatness that yes, Ada would regret later valid, but for now it was good, rich. It meant that I was an I, like I and I, like I wasn't going back to that larger we. Ha, how can? No, I was free. I had elevated, transcended in fact. Risen like steam until this was me standing in the field of Ada's body, She named me this name, Asuhara, complete with that gritty slide of the throat halfway through. I hope it scrapes your mouth bloody to say it. When you name something, it comes into existence. Did you know that? There's strength there, bone-white power injected in a rush, like a trembling drug. Wait, is this how humans feel? To know that you are separate and special, to be individual and distinct. It's amazing. But I had to remind myself that I wasn't human or flesh. I was just a self, a little beast, if you like, locked inside Ada. Still, it was nice to be able to move her body and feel things. When I came in front, I moved like those masquerades from her childhood, with meat layered in front of my spirit face. All I'm saying is, it was good to walk in the world. I never forgot Virginia or the boy Soren, the place and person who midwifed me here. I also didn't forget that Ada was Allah's child. It would be too careless to forget something like that. If you are a python's child, then you are also a python, simple. There should have been a regular molting that came with that, but I was not regular. I wasn't allowed some gentle and slow shrugging off of skin. No, my own was to tear it away as soon as I came through, splitting it into pieces that were never found, coming out damp with blood. This is what happens when you act as if a human can hold God matter without it curdling. Ada loved Misha. She loved me because I hated that boy. She loved me because I was reckless. I had no conscience, no sympathy, no pity. She loved me because I was strong and I held her together. I loved her because me, I had known her since I was nothing, since I was everything, since that shell-blue house in Umwahya. I loved her because I watched her grow up, because she gave offerings since I started awakening, feeding me from the crook of her arm and the skin of her thighs. Let me tell you now, I loved her because in the moment of her devastation, the moment she lost her mind, that girl reached for me so hard that she went completely mad. And I loved her because when I flooded through, she spread herself open and took me in without hesitation, bawling and broken. She absorbed me fiercely all the way. She denied me nothing. I loved her because she gave me a name.
1: Your debut book is so amazing, so thoughtful. It it literally pulls the reader into a whole another realm. And my first question to you is just like, what is the origin story behind Freshwater? How did you begin to create this world where there there are humans, there are spirits, there is so much in the in between? How did you start to cultivate this world
2: in, in your mind and in your heart? Well, it. It kind of started a couple of years ago. I was doing research into Igbo naming practices. So my name translates directly into Python's egg. But when I would talk to my father, he would always tell me that, oh, your name means precious. And I was like, there's a little bit of a gap between the (laughs) translation and what you're saying. And so I became curious, like why is a Python's egg precious? Why is there this gap? What is the thing that we're not saying underneath it? And so I did some research and I found out that the python is the physical manifestation of an Igbo deity called Allah. And so the python's egg is considered precious because it's literally the child of a deity. And so that was one of the like jumping off points for the book was this recollection basically that there's this whole reality that existed in my culture before we got colonized. Mm -hmm. And things that came from that reality have kind of been severed from it. Which is why, like, there's like that gap in my name, where it's like, oh, it means precious, because no one's going to say, oh, it's because it means you're the child of a pagan deity. <laughs> like, that's not really accepted. Um, I wasn't; the church wouldn't let my family baptize me with that name, and so they had to give me a second name because the priests were like, oh no, that is just some heathen. Like, no. <laughs> um, and so I, I became really interested in the realities that we've been separated from and the ways in which they've been invalidated, and the ways in which being colonized was basically a group of people coming and saying, hey, everything that you've believed for centuries and that your family has believed for generations is fake, Mm. and we're going to tell you what's real, and you're going to believe that, and everyone after us is going to basically say, these are the things that are real, and these are the things that are not real, and so I wanted to make work that... like to step back into that reality and say, well, what happens if I use my life as an archive and I just look through that lens instead of centering it in a Western one? And that's basically how Freshwater came about.
1: So if you're looking at your life as an archive, where did you
2: first discover your first like spiritual lessons? I'm not entirely sure. A couple of years before I even started writing Freshwater, there was a time when I was like deeply suicidal. And I was making a couple of paintings mm-hmm. very just like blindly and spontaneously. And, um, and a lot of them were about this concept of the Obanje. And it was, they were asking questions like, how does an Obanje go home? And so the thing with Obanje is that they're this Igbo entity that gets born into humans and then they die. And then they just keep doing that over and over in the same family basically to torture the mother, but what's important in this context is that they have a cohort in the spirit world. So whenever an Obanje is born, you're supposed to die to go back to your cohort, and there's that pull. Mm -hmm. And so for me, at the time when I was suicidal, it felt very specifically like that. It Mm. felt very much like there was a pull. And it wasn't a thing that made sense in any, like, Western context, in, like, therapy. It was just like, no, this doesn't make sense. And then I... I wasn't even thinking much about it when I started making the paintings. It wasn't until a couple of years later that I started thinking about the book a little bit more. And then I was like, oh, well, if I shift my center from this Western reality to, like, an Igbo reality, then all these things that weren't making sense in one suddenly clicked into place in the other.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, um, as you know, I'm Nigerian as well. So reading it, it, it completely made sense to me. But I, I was thinking of the Western mindset and how the Western reader may object to your narrative. Were you intentionally looking to decolonize your work? Were you sending a message to uh, whoever is reading your work that this does exist? Were you trying to make it a teachable
2: moment or simply just sharing your story? I was trying to say what was true Mm. in that sense. And I think it was a truth that was very hard to come to because so much of the after effects of colonialism are that you're taught not to deal with realities like this. Like you're not taught about it in school, it's considered evil, juju, black magic, like just stay away from all of that. And there's a lot of stigma that comes with that. So shifting into that, was a terrifying thing to do, right. because I had been raised with all the stigma around it. Um, and there's a Toni Morrison quote that I have dreadfully overused in talking about this book, and yet I will not stop, <laughs> um, It was this thing she says after she won the Nobel Prize, and someone asked her how it felt to have her work like be popular in the mainstream, and she was like, she's like, that's interesting, my work was already in the mainstream. And then she said, I stood at the edge, at the borders. I claimed it as center, and I let the rest of the world move over. Mm. And so it's not so much about a teachable moment or about like trying to convince other people. I don't particularly care about that. Right. <laughs> but it's just about like there's, I think, a strength in just the act of declaring where you are at the center and refusing to move from that.
1: That's beautiful. I, I, I also... I'm just really curious about the writing of, like, the style and the structure of this book. Like, how did you go about doing research? Was there a research? Um, and if so, were you able to, like, workshop this? Like, when you're talking about something that no one, not a lot of people have, you know, knowledge of, how do you kind of, like, test, you know, if this, if your, like, narrative is moving in the right direction?
2: That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm. So secret confession, I'm not so good with like craft questions because I yeah. never quite figured out, like, it's a thing that I am I can think about in editing, mm-hmm. but it's not a thing I think about while writing. Okay. Like in writing, it's just like, oh, what does the story want? Right. And does this... So it's this, more intuitive. Yes, okay. exactly. It's like, does the story feel like this or does it feel otherwise? And with Freshwater in particular, when I started it, I had no idea where I was going to go. Mm-hmm. Like I had no idea how, because I was just like, I I don't even understand this format, like, but I'm going to tell it the way that it feels in my head. I'm going to try and write it as accurately as it's happening in my head. One of my friends recently read it, and she was, like, talking to me about a chapter where, like, the different selves are having a conversation with each other. Yeah. And she's like, they're beefing, I love it. And I was like, that is actually a journal entry that is basically transcribed, like I just lifted it from a journal and put it in the book. (laughs) I'm like, that that. actually happened (laughs) in my head (laughs) and I just moved it over and like cleaned it up a little bit. Um, And so a lot of it wasn't even making up stuff, it was documentary in a sense. It was like, oh, I'm trying to render it as faithfully as it was happening. But I put it as fiction because there's a certain flexibility you have with stories where you can, a thing can be true in a story without it being factual. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important, it gives an important flexibility to telling.
1: Yeah, but, but with that, there is a, a element of like memoir-esque, like these are your like experiences. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the article you wrote for The Cut. And in that, you know, you discuss some like the spiritual and political forces that are working in your life and how it is for you being a non binary transgender person when when those things happened when you had the hysterectomy like were you thinking about the book you know, or like was this like something like it happened and it actually like, became part of your own narrative and the story here or are they two separate incidences entirely
2: um, the book was already like done okay. and I think out on submission okay. by then. But again, the thing about there's this is conversation I had with my sister that's mentioned in the acknowledgements where before yeah. I wrote the book, I was like really scared because I'm like, in order to write something that's centered in a reality like this, you have to enter the reality. Mm-hmm. And I was like, particularly want to, like this seems kind of scary and unfamiliar and my sister was like, she's very practical and yeah. like no nonsense about things. And she's like, well, you need to write the book. <laughs> and if you know you need to enter the reality to write the book, then just, you know, treat it like you're a method actor and just enter the reality and make the work and do what needs to be done and like worry about the rest later. And I was like, okay, cool. And my fear was that if I entered that reality, I wouldn't be able to go back to the way I was before I entered mm-hmm. it. Turned out to be a completely valid fear because that's exactly what happened. <laughs> but it 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 worked out. The book was useful because in in it, it's like again using the life as an archive. Yeah, it's like you get to sift through an entire well, an in, not an entire lifetime because it's still ongoing. But you get to sift through a considerable portion of a lifetime, and and there's a lot of clarity that comes from that, and it's a at some point, I think I said that like as I was discovering the book, I was discovering myself at the same time. And it's, so it's very, um, it's very linked in mm-hmm. a way that's, that I wouldn't really pull apart.
1: I recently had a conversation with a playwright, and she was telling me, you know, a lot of times with plays, you can go back and change endings and make amendments, you know, after the work is technically completed. Um, With your book, now that it's like a finished product, is there anything that you would go back and maybe amend or change with one of the voices or even the, the primary character Ada? Would you make her different in any way now that you've had like these experiences and you've seen it out in the world?
2: No, actually. Like it it was a lot of work to mm-hmm. make the book. When it got to my editor, the first round of edits cut like 10,000 words out of the book. It Oh. Was you can't say 10,000 words and not tell us what.
1: What did she cut out?
2: <laughs> <laughs> he. So, um, so origin in the first draft of the book, the deity Allah has a separate voice ah. in it. Um, and then my editor had said, I think maybe you should think about removing that voice. And I did the thing that I tell all my writer friends to not do, which is when you get edits, I'm like, don't make a fuss until you try out the edits. Like, Mm. try it first and then make a fuss. And I did not do that. As soon as I got the email, I was like, oh, my goodness. I can't believe you would ask me to get rid of this voice. This voice is so important. And then, (laughs) and bless him, I think he's used to writers doing that. He's like, just try it. And then I tried it. And I was like, oh, it's actually better the way you <laughs> said it. This is awkward. <laughs> um, and so we cut out that voice and integrated it into the wee voice. And, okay. and I think it, it worked. Um, when we did the book launch last week, my editor was there, and someone had asked a question about the editing process. And he said something that was very helpful and true that I hadn't thought about in that sense. He said that the whole, that whole first process of editing was really to condense the book like it distilled it and it made it more concentrated and more intense mm. than what it was before. And so, cutting out that ten thousand, I think, helped it a lot. I shudder to think of what it would have been like without that.
1: <laughs> no, now I'm curious. I want to read. I want to hear his voice. A separate. Um, well, let's let's just talk more about the editing process and what the points that you found challenging like the encounter that you had with your editor uh, and then the other sections that maybe were more rewarding for you like what what else in that process did you learn about like just your writing because it it, being your debut book it feels very cohesive and it feels like you've been writing you know maybe this is your, your 12th book versus your first you know so what was it about the the practice that just helped solidify
2: this for you um, so it is the first like full book I'd ever written, and I think for me the bits that were rewarding were the conversations among the selves, mm-hmm. um, partly because I had written them about eight years before. But it was it was one of my favorite parts of how this whole reality is set up is that they weren't alone, yeah, and they had each other, and there were all these like for me that's a very comforting. Aspect of the book is mm-hmm. that Ada is not alone and mm-hmm. that she has these selves and their like siblings yeah. and they're each other at the same time. And that was that was fun for me to write. Also because their dialogue is fun. Mm-hmm. I think I like dialogue a lot. And it was yes. it was it's hard in a book like this because there's not a lot of dialogue because mm-hmm. it's internal and because the we voice isn't talking to anyone else yeah. other than itself and the reader. Um so those are the bits that were rewarding. I think what was challenging was taking this reality that makes sense like in my head and then how to make it legible to a reader. Yeah. Um and that's that's a bit harder. And that's the part where like an editor's eye is invaluable, um, because it's hard to get distance from it. Yeah. And it's hard to I don't know, just see it from someone else's perspective when it's something that you've been so like inside and immersed in. Mm -hmm. And and so I think that the practice of pulling away and like not taking feedback personally and trying to see how I can make it legible without losing like the thing that still makes the story what it is.
1: Right. So we have, you know, we're in New York. And we have the perspective here, but I'm curious about how folks responded back home. Like, what were folks in Lagos saying about your book, or currently saying about your book?
2: I'm curious, too. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know yet. It's not out in Nigeria until May. Oh, okay. Um, And so I won't really know until then. And I was going through this period where I was just like lurking on Twitter and yeah. like trying to see what people were saying right. because Nigerians have a very, very different way of responding to things oh, than anyone Of course,
1: anyone else. Of course. I, I am. I cannot wait for it to be in Nigeria because I think there the the pieces here that maybe a Western mindset might be surprised by. I think in Nigeria it, this will make complete sense in a way. It will click immediately. Um, and I'm I'm I can't wait for the feedback. For I'm that.
2: really excited about it too because Nigeria is like where this re- is like this reality's home. Yeah, you know, and there's these layers of translation that have to happen outside when you're talking to people from like a different culture that are not necessary when it's like a Nigerian reading it.
1: Right, right. I well, how about within your family? What was the response from your parents, from your sister? um
2: my dad hasn't read it oh okay so so that's going to be fun <laughs> um my mom read it and loved it mm-hmm. my sister has read like I've written two other like novel manuscripts after this one and she's read them and she likes them better than this one and I mm-hmm. think for her <laughs> <the sister-like> response. <laughs> yeah. she was like eh. um but she was like it was hard for her to read and I think because it is autobiographical fiction so mm-hmm. like she's in it and she's reading like about her own life and yeah. i think for my family they're like oh that happened that right. they didn't know about and then they find out in the book but also i'm not particularly asking them right. like how they feel about it because As i'm not sure i want to know you shouldn't
1: i think i think that's like the, the responsibility of the writer is just to put the work out there you shouldn't ask permission from your family cuz that changes everything <laughs> um, I guess I'm I'm, I'm now curious, because you mentioned Toni Morrison earlier. Are there other writers, um, whether emerging or or established, that influenced your work or just offer you inspiration as you're writing?
2: Um, There was this book by the writer Malidoma Sommey, and the book Mm -hmm. is called Of Water and Mm Spirits. And he's the writer who, in whose work I first came across the entire Mm -hmm. concept of how colonizing a people strips them of one reality and replaces them with another. Mm. And in reading that book, I was like, oh, okay. Because he's, his is a memoir. And Of Water and Spirit basically talks about the whole like spiritual reality that his people are from. I think he's from Burkina Faso. Okay. And how he got like initiated and got kidnapped and taken to a Jesuit school and then oh, had to wow. find his way back to his people. and And all of this. And it was the first time I had read something where someone had centered like a work in this like indigenous reality Mm -hmm. and the question of whether it was real or not was not even relevant because it was very clear that no no this is real this is a reality and and that idea of having multiple realities be true at the same time having this reality that like his people have known and then a western reality that was brought and how he kind of navigates the two so i think that book was deeply influential at least in just giving me an example of what it looks like like oh no someone's done that before that's helpful right.
1: when it comes to your own like practice whether writing how much of it is derived from from your journaling you mentioned you journal often and how much how much of it for lack of a better word is your imagination just like completely made up
2: um Freshwater was an exception. Okay. So this is the only, I think really the only like major piece that's based on an archive. Like I interviewed my mom for the book and she got to pick the name of her character. Oh, really? We tried to make her feel included. (laughs) I gave her a list of names and I was like, pick the one you like. And then she picked it. And then she was like sending me these emails where she was telling me things about my childhood that I didn't remember. Um, And then she called me when I was done and she's like, I hope you haven't said anything in the book that, you know, is going to, you know, embarrass the family. And I was like, you, whatever you said, (laughs) like, that's on you. That's not on me. Maybe you shouldn't have told me things if you didn't want them in the book I told you I was writing. Um, So one is an exception in that sense. Most other things I write are imagination, like more so that. And I find that a lot easier Mm -hmm. um, because you don't, you can just make up more things. Yeah. Like basing it in an archive like requires a kind of loyalty to the archive. And right. when I'm just spinning stuff out of nowhere, it's like, oh, I can do whatever I want. That's relaxing.
1: Right, right. Um, I I was very drawn to chapter five, which we were talking about earlier. Because I loved how with each chapter you have like a different quote of, of how you open the um, The chapter. So, with chapter five, you say at the very beginning, can you pray into your own ear? Uh, And then it goes on to talk about the different deities, and they talk um, about how. Ada was named after her second birth. How did you decide to open each chapter with these almost like it, they feel biblical in a way, you know? Where you're like, like, okay, I, I could, I would write this on a sticky you note and try to remember it later. <laughs> you know, how, what was the the crafting of these one-liners in the opening of each chapter?
2: Um, so some of them were based on conversations I had had when I was like still thinking about the book or when I had started writing the book. And so this particular one, Can You Pray Into Your Own Ear, came from a conversation I was having about the idea of if you have these selves in your head and these selves are you, but they're also, and this is also like another distinction that I've started to think about only after the book came out, is where people would talk about the book and they would be like, oh, there's like gods and spirits in her head possessing her. And I did this thing of being like, no, they are not gods or spirits, they are selves. And then a week later, I was like, wait, they are gods and spirits, but the Mm -hmm. only reason why they are is because she is. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of their separate entities possessing her is like that whole idea of possession is the one that's inaccurate. It's like they are her, she is them. And the only reason why they're gods is because she's the child of a deity, which makes a kind of a deity herself. And then whatever is an offshoot of her would naturally have the same qualities as her. So all that being said, I was talking to a friend and the friend was like, oh, well, you know, if you have deities inside your head, can you pray into your own ear? Wow. And I was like, that is a good question. <laughs> I'm gonna put that in the
1: book. <laughs> right, right. No, it's beautiful. But it, it's it happens in every chapter where, um, in chapter 10, uh, do you feel real when he touches you or do you still feel dead? There are all these moments where they, they seem just like intentional powerful one-liners and but they also like, they frame the whole chapter of each uh, chapter. Are you also are you thinking of it as poetry as you're writing those? Because are these all intertwined in one way?
2: Um, they kind of are I think because they, they're they intertwined in the sense that they all relate to the story and mm-hmm. they're all they're like it's like if there was a story and there's like highlighted yeah. portions of it, then I pull out the highlighted portions and make them like the little the little epigraphs. But um, for me, I think they were, some of them were like stray thoughts mm-hmm. that I didn't want to work into the larger story. Like I think they would get a little lost in there. Yeah. And so kind of just presenting them as, here's a line to think about. Yeah, oh, yeah. I was wondering about this. And some of them are like Igbo proverbs.
1: Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. I, I, when I was referencing like biblical, are they proverbs that exist in the world already or are they simply something that you created like with the story before?
2: The evil ones exist already. Okay. Um, and so what was the one you just read? The, oh, no, the one about are you? Are, do you still feel dead? So that was really a thought that I was having about this idea of if an obanje is an entity that's literally born to die, and this is the thing I talked about in the essay in the cut, is that if you were born to die and and different from like the sense of, oh, everyone's born to die. Like this is a very specific thing where the entire point of Anubanji's existence is to die. Yeah. So that it can, like that's the entire effect it has. It's not, the point is not to live, the point is to die. So if you're a thing that's born to die, then you are a dead thing, mm. even while you live. Mm. And it's like how they say, like dead man walking. Yeah. You know? And, and so what does it feel like to be a dead thing. What a! in a lot of ways, people look for avenues to feel alive. So being with someone or being intimate with someone as a way to feel alive. And so that's where that quote came from. It's like, well, do you feel alive or do you still feel dead? Yeah. Um, And so thoughts like that in chapter nine, the um, Igbo proverb there translates to when a big masquerade appears, the small masquerades run away. Mm-hmm. And it's just this idea of like the power of spirits. Like when a big spirit shows up, small ones scatter. Yeah, and
1: scatter, scatter.
2: <laughs> yeah. And so I, well, I had a friend who read the book, and he was like, "Oh, he's like, you can. He's like, have you actually just read all of them in a row? Yeah. I was and I actually that. haven't gotten around to that because you I was too lazy that. to write them down. You should do but that. But he was like, "Yeah, he's like, you should read all of them in a row, and like as if they were just." connected. Right. And see how that feels, because he'd done it and he found it really interesting.
1: Oh, that's beautiful. Because I, I definitely thought about that. Can you translate chapter six for me, too?
2: Chapter six translates to the Igbo says, boom and it means the person who comes to kill me kills themselves.
1: Yes. and there are A lot of times I was sharing this with my mom. I was like, what does this mean? <laughs> you know? And she, there's there so many, that is such a Nigerian thing to do where you have these like one, you know, sentences where you're just like, I'm not sure what this means, but it means something good and powerful, you know? And so I was sharing that with, with my mom and she, cause she didn't pronounce, she didn't pronounce it the way, interpreted it the way she did. She was just like, when you cause trouble, it causes you to die. You know, like, and, it, and the way she when she would pre- interpreted it, I was like, Mom, what does what does that mean? And her, my mom is very conservative, so her immediate thing was like, Are you reading Juju? What is this? <laughs> Like she, she said just, that. She was just like she was like really concerned because I was trying to do it over the phone. Uh-huh. I like I, I believe we had been like in person. It wouldn't mm-hmm. been able to translate. But she just was like, she gets fearful. like her wow. her her uh, like automatic response was just to be like, what are you trying to dig into that you're not supposed to be digging into? Oh, wow. so
2: that line is actually from, so I did do a lot of research into the book. I read like a lot of text. Igbo people, it turns out, really love to write. Mm. about our culture, like academic papers, Oh, I believe it. There's like a PDF somewhere. Like someone did like a whole master's thing just about death rituals Mm. among the Igbo. And so there's a lot of stuff out there to read. But so that line actually comes from a prayer to Allah
1: mm.
2: um, where, and it's basically like an invocation to her saying, you know, if anyone should come to kill me, they will kill themselves. What's fascinating is that it translates, like you can translate it into like colloquial Nigerian English mm. where someone will say, you're not doing me, you're doing yourself. Ye- yes. Or as princess, you cannot play, if you try to play me, you play, play yourself. yourself.
1: <laughs> yes, yes like the African version of that. Yeah, yeah it's so dope. so my, my parents are not Igbo, they're epic. So it's just like the translation's a little bit, it's a little different, but um I I love that, but I now I want to really string them all together and read them out loud. That's like, okay, you guys get to work on that. We need to like put them all together, put it on Twitter, make a thread. Yes. Um I think I will
2: actually do that. Yes, yeah. yes
1: you should. Let's talk a little bit just about like the online community coming out to support your work. There was a point where you did, actually did like a little lexicon, like translating, um, you know, the, explaining the fact that she's not possessed, You know, like trying to give people I know, some I context. I need to put an
2: addendum to that. I've been procrastinating on this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's great because I think people are interacting with your, obviously they're reading the book and they're engaged, but they're also just eager to talk to you and get your first hand and count to and get these, like translations, whether it's online or coming to a conversation to talk to you, what? How do you think? Um, just like online conversations have helped, you know, spread the word, get like awareness out, and help un- understanding what you're trying to put forth with this book.
2: So, so two slightly separate things. So the thing about like conversations around the work that's super important to me because when I was like scared to write the book, I went back home. I went to Ghana. And to Nigeria, and I was talking to people kind of about this world that was existing in my head. And I was like, oh, I'm thinking about turning this into a book. Yeah. And what happened that I did not expect was that I would talk to people about it, I would tell them like all these details of this reality in my head. And then people would tell me their realities. Mm. And and especially like it has a different impact, I think, when it's like. And I've had these conversations in Bahia, in Jamaica, and and then people are like, oh yeah, like people who see the future in their dreams and who like know things about people and are struggling with whether they should tell people or not. Or someone who like someone was like, Oh yeah, I live in like parallel dimensions. And all these realities that people had and they weren't talking about, because if you say it out loud, the two options are that you're mentally ill, yeah, or that you're possessed by a demon. Right. And And that's basically it. And so when I was like talking to people, I was like, oh wait, there's a whole community of people like me who have these realities in their heads and they're not sharing it and they're not connected to each other Mm -hmm. because it's so stigmatized that it's hard to say out loud. I met this poet who I was telling her about it and she was talking about her son and she was like, yeah, my son hears voices. And she's like, it's fine. She's like, I heard voices when he was his age, when I was his age. And she's like, it's just your ancestors talking to you, baby. You can talk back to them. Right. And like this whole like centering in a reality where it's like, if you put that child in a different reality where they get like diagnosed and medicated and and she was just like, oh no, I'm protecting him from that reality because that reality is harmful to him. He needs to know there's nothing wrong with hearing spirits right. or like ghosts or she's like, no, that's all real stuff. And and so encounters like that were very affirming for me, and it's kind of like this loop where I hope that the book becomes affirming, and it and it has. I've heard back from some readers who are like, oh yeah, I'm not crazy. Yeah. Like, okay, and then they're writing and talking more about their realities, and that's a lot of what I hoped for because I think that whole separation from these realities and that whole isolation it causes is... Again, one of the effects of being colonized. And right. you have these people and like the those realities don't go away. They don't die. Mm-hmm. They get passed on. They get passed on through generations. They get passed on into the diaspora. Yeah. Like in all the like Afro-diasporic religions. Like all these things are there. And and I think they could bear a lot more like talking about and a lot more of like people connecting with it. With the online community, I've been on the internet for like tw- I was started blogging like 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. And had, like, all these different iterations. I ran, like, a natural hair blog for, like, eight years. Mm And um, I used to blog about my personal life a lot more. And and it's interesting because a lot of people who know me online have known me through these iterations. And, like, they've been there. They've, like, chipped in to send me to writing workshops. Um, one of them tweeted the other day and she was like, ah, yeah, she's like, I, she read the book and she's like, I knew it was autobiographical So, because I, I remember when she was married and she was blogging about it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, like, they're the OGs. I'm like, y'all have just been witnessing for a long time. Um, but I think that's like a, a specialness to it. And I think that's part of why I'm so like active online is because I'm like, I didn't, like, I've been in this, like in a kind of community yeah. with People, are there people I've known for like a decade mm-hmm. online, and like we're real friends now. But we met because we were reading each other's blogs a decade ago. Yeah, and so that world is really just like another reality that's very real to me, and this other space that has given me a lot, and that I try to like, um, I think, be cognizant of and like recognize and be like, no, this this is an importance group of people
1: yeah well, well it seems like it's very apparent that you're like nurturing that and you like you said boundaries of course because i think you know a book cannot simply just be workshopped and discussed online it needs to exist in a real space and it needs to have like i, I feel like there's something about actually touching a book and hold it in its pages it's very special but you do so in such a way that just shows gratitude towards the reader and allows them to like feel connected to you so I, I I would just like to say like thank you for that like helping people see themselves and affirming you know
2: that these are the real realities and there's nothing to be ashamed of
1: um, well, thank you
2: I think for me the affirmation is also like it's like a two-way street you know it's and also the time that readers take to talk about a book yes. and to like the Goodreads review section, I'm just like, bless y'all, like <laughs> I'm lazy, I don't review books, like even if I love them, like it takes time right. to sit down and write and share and like, and give a perspective that I particularly appreciate because I will never get to be just a reader of this book, Right. and so I, when I get to hear how people are like talking about it or where they came from it, and especially, um, I have like a soft spot in my heart for like all the West African readers because it's like those are the ones who are like, oh, you know, it's blasphemous. And I'm like, it's blasphemous. That's amazing. And I get really excited about it because um, that's, I think also that's kind of the point of writing a book is that it goes out to readers and there's a, even if you can't always engaging it, Directly, there's still a conversation mm-hmm. that's happening, and people are still like giving a gift of their time to read the book yes. and their words to tell you what they thought about it and the energy that it takes for them to engage with a right. book. Like, I don't I think that's important, yeah.
1: With that, I think we're going to turn to the readers. Um, thank you guys for coming. We have someone with a mic who's going to pass or go, up, go around if you have a question.
0: Okay, so if you have a question. Like Laurie said, just raise your hand. I'll start toward the front and work my way back. Anyone got a question they'd like to ask?
3: This is sort of a half question. I'm about a third way through the book, and the book is really brilliant. And it reminds me to, to a large extent of a lot of the transpersonal psychology and a lot of the writings of people like James Hillman, who has gone back and away from the monoculture and talked about the existence of multiple gods and how they, you know, how they've been in Western culture particularly, but also in Eastern. Um, less so in in, in 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 African culture, and that the that they have they 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 crop they crop up in different ways. You know, the, the, they crop up and there were gods of this of different places and, and inside people as well. And it's all been it's all been sort of buried in, into subculture and you know crazy movies and horror stuff. But the concept of multiple voices is real throughout the throughout a lot of culture. It's just repressed. It's just really, really repressed, and whether it's outside or inside, it's inside of us. And you know I just wonder how you, how, how, how you feel about the, the whole notion of um, multiple gods in general It's sort of a, the imagination coming out of a polythe, polytheistic kind of uh, approach to, to spiritualism and soul-making. So does that resonate at all, or is that, or is it very different? Is it all internal, you know?
2: Um, well, I think the, for me, it's such a thing that's just an, a, like an aspect of reality that I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I have a particular feeling about it, because it just is, um, in terms of there being multiple gods and multiple gods existing in multiple realities. Yeah, so both external and internal, and, and I think one of the things about multiple realities, especially when we're talking about spiritualities, is this acknowledgement that they can all exist like at the same time. And so like in Nigeria alone, there's at least two hundred and fifty different ethnic groups. So that's two hundred and fifty different like belief systems minimum, two hundred and fifty different realities, each of them having multiple gods within them and so and that's just like one country let alone you include like the rest of the world like there's a whole thing there and so I, yeah I'm always I'm interested to see how people like I'm really interested to learn more about like other realities that have multiple gods. I've been reading this book by there's this writer um, Cassandra Kaur and I th- Think she's either Malaysian or Singaporean, but she was writing about um, Chinese gods and like the that specific reality, which is fascinating because it's a bureaucracy. So like you can create a zombie by putting a contract on its face, and I was just like, oh my goodness. And so like reading her and her books are like written as like speculative fiction. Um, and, and I think it was fascinating for me because my mom's Malaysian and a lot of those books are like set in Malaysia. And I was like, oh wow, this is like a whole other aspect of this is a whole other reality. These are whole other like multiple gods that I've never met before. And I think the stories that go around that are like always deeply like engaging to me.
1: Hi, um, I'm from Nigeria. So you have some people from West Africa here. Nija. Niger. <laughs> yeah,
2: Nigeria, Nigeria.
1: <laughs> So you speak about colonialism being something that suppressed realities amongst um, maybe Nigerians or other post-colonial countries. Do you have any thoughts on multiple realities or multiple gods in a context where there hasn't been colonialism? So to the gentleman's earlier question, that's an American context. So do you have any thoughts about maybe man- mental illnesses or splits? multiple personalities or multiple gods or realities in a
2: non-post-colonial context, so let's say in America or in the UK? I mean, I think that it's just another reality. Like, and here's the thing, they're not mutually exclusive either. So one of the conversations I've been having around the book a lot is this, like when people are like, oh, it's a book about mental illness, and I'm like, it's not a book about mental illness, it's a book about embodiments. And the struggles that come with that. And the struggles that come from that can manifest as like mental health stuff. Like you can, yeah, you can be depressed because you're supposed to be dead and you're in a human body, sure. (laughs) Like therapy will be somewhat useful for that. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if I'm answering the question specifically. I think for me it's not a thing that I think one of the assumptions that some people have about the book is they're like oh well if you're saying that this reality exists then you're saying that that other one doesn't and I'm like no there's no reason for them not to exist at the same time like and and it's also not meant to be prescriptive in any sense it's not meant to say like oh if you've been Existing in a reality where you've been interpreting what's happening in your head as a mental illness that you're wrong. I'm like, how would I know that? Like, that's your reality. I'm not in any position to tell anybody what their realities are or to tell them that, oh no, it's not that you're mentally ill. It's that there's a God in your head. <laughs> like, um, I don't have the authority to do that. I can only talk about like this specific story and like speak from my perspective and hope it resonates with people who didn't know there was another way of being. Hi. um, So you talked about a conversation you had with your sister uh, about uh, starting, uh, about writing this book, actually. And so I have a question about vulnerability. Was there reluctance for you to put so much of your life story as like an arc? Is there like a version of this book that exists where you actually wanted to stay away from your personal story and like write from a different... Um, I guess, through write a life
0: story from characters that is not based on your own?
2: Not of this book, no. So the vulnerability thing is like, is real (laughs) because I, it was very difficult to write the book. And I think one of the saving graces is that there's such a long period of time between finishing a book and the public getting the book. So it kind of like, gives you time to buffer and time to build up. But no, I had several emotional breakdowns while writing the book, just so many, um, because it, it was difficult. But part of the whole thing about immersing was that you can't do it with like one foot in and one foot out. Like If you're going to do it, you've got to go like all in. And that's what the work required. And for me, the thing that's very specific about this book in talking about like these communities that I found while I was like talking to people about writing it was this constant reminder that it wasn't just about finding a reality that made sense to me, but it was also about providing a service. And that service meant that other people who were stuck in that really isolated place would find a book and feel a little more sane and a little more seen and maybe not feel so isolated, and perhaps the book would do for them what I would have needed a book to do, like if this book had existed before I wrote it. And so that was helpful, in a sense, and that was kind of the thing that pushed me through making it, was just knowing that, okay, this is not just about me, and this is bigger than me. And, and that was also a really weird thing to come to terms with, because I was like... Ministry? This is what's happening now. <laughs> um, but in the reactions of people who like read even the early drafts or just talking about me, it meant a lot to people. And that in turn meant a lot to me. And, and part of why I like went really hard for the book was this knowledge that if it needs to get to people, it needs to be like widely accessible like people need to be able to find it in order for it to do the work that it needs to do. And so for me, a lot of the time with my writing, I think about it as like work that's existing in the world for a reason. And that reason is bigger than me. And so if it helps, like people in the way that I needed help, then it's, it's worth the cost. And in this case, the cost was vulnerability.
0: Okay,
1: so society and everything you've been impact, you've, be, being in, in the U.S., you, you've had different experiences, and that are very different from being in Nigeria and how mm-hmm. people think about realities. And, and Ogbanje, for example, you, I, I don't think there's a word in English for that necessarily, right? Um, I think every Nigerian culture has their word for it mm-hmm. as well. So my question is: less on the counterfactual, and more about: Would you have been able to express everything that you said in this book? had you stayed in Nigeria or if you had gone back and written
2: that book in Nigeria? Okay, I think I get that more now. Um, I don't think the... So when I wrote the book, like when I was just physically sitting and writing the book, I wrote it in upstate New York and during like a terrible winter in like an attic apartment. And when I'm when I'm writing a book, the outside environment is irrelevant um, because what happens is that so much of writing a book, especially like a book length thing, is about constructing a world. And for me personally, I need a lot of isolation and quiet. Like I can't write in cafes, I can't write around people, I can't do writing dates. Like it's just, I'm like you are interfering with the reality I'm building and you need to go away. <laughs> and so there's a specific kind of isolation I need so that, because it's like having a, just like a blankness and then that blankness is necessary if you're creating a world. So there's nothing interfering with it, there's no, it's like a, a kind of a pure space. Um, and also, in the process of making something, I wasn't thinking about, because it's so internal and it's so like sequestered, it's not isolated but insulated from the outside world. Um, at the time of writing it, I'm not thinking about, oh, how's it going to be received? How like and I actually find it deeply um, damaging to think about things like that while writing a first draft, because that's the wrong time to be thinking about it. Like, that's, that first draft is between you and the story, full stop. Like, the, everything else, you can worry about that later. Like, when you're editing, when, like, then down the line, you can allow the outside world in. But there's this thing about, like, keeping the work safe and building, like, a wall around it. Um, I think there's probably an, an ease to putting, like when you get to the stage where you do have to think about other people, there's like probably an ease to being here where it's like, oh, well, you know, I can put it out. It's not going to be as stressful it's as if I was like launching it in Nigeria, for example, which is like a whole different level of stress. My editor there is like, so when are you coming to do your thing? I'm like, please. <laughs> I'm not ready. <laughs> like, um, So there is, I think, in that stage, that becomes a consideration, but in the writing stage, not so much.
1: I'm just curious what you're going to be doing next. What else are you working on that you want to share with us?
2: Um, so I have a young adult novel that's coming out next year um, with this imprint called Make Me a World Press, run by Christopher Myers, and in partnership with Knopf Books for Young Readers. And it's about... Uh, young girl who frees a creature from her mother's painting. She's Nigerian and Trini. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> uh, and the book, the story is about finding monsters in a world that claims that monsters don't exist anymore.
0: That's great. So stay tuned. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Thank you all so much.
2: Yeah,
0: that was a Quakey talking with Glory Eden. The book is Freshwater. The New York Public Library podcast is produced by Skylar Swenson with editorial support from Riker Schnorr and myself, Aiden Flax-Clark.